Hello everybody and thank you for joining us for this final episode in this series of Activist Lawyer. Uh, today we are joined by Dr. Yasin Brunger, who is a lecturer in human rights law and the co-director of the Gender, Justice and Society Research Network at Queen's University, Belfast. We hope you enjoy today's recording. We look forward to you joining us again for the next series. We already have some fantastic guests lined up. And again, follow us on all social media. Um, And thank you once again for joining us. We are delighted to be joined by Dr. Yasin Bringer. Hello, Dr. Yasin Bringer. Good morning. Good morning. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us. Um, We've been in contact for a little while, haven't we, around this? Thank you for the invitation. Not at all. We were really excited, but I can't believe time has gone by so fast since we were were first in contact. So we were very excited to have you down here and thank Thank you for joining us in person. We're also very happy to to have that. But um, so I read through um, a little outline of your work and your experience, but I'm hoping you can take our listeners just maybe through your own journey and just um, share with us your experience. Um, So that's our first question to you. (laughs) Okay. um, so I am a Gambian uh, uh, who has been living sort of in different parts of the UK and Northern Ireland for, oh gosh, 20 something years. time flies. Um, Gambia, uh, for for your listeners, is a beautiful country, smallest country in continental uh, Africa. It's uh, on the west coast of Africa. It's got a population around two million or so. Um, and I say those figures not to be David Attenborough and give you National Geographic, <laughs> but to say that I come from a space that's similar to Northern Ireland. Everybody knows everybody. Um, there is a kind of close n- closeness within the community, um, or communities, I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but I've I've um, been happily living in Northern Ireland, sort of on and off for gosh. 13 odd years so I did my PhD at Queen's which brought me to Belfast Mm -hmm. Um, didn't know anything about it people were very freaked out just because Northern Ireland had that reputation as I'm sure everyone knows (laughs) Um, but I was excited to come I was like look let's just do this Um, I had been brought up uh, in the Middle East um, and then so I was used to kind of being almost nomadic in my travels and adventurous Mm -hmm. so going to new places was was not a problem so when I landed in Belfast I was so intrigued number one (laughs) intrigued (laughs) um, just because it was so clear um, that I was a visible minority okay in uh, a city and I think um, I'm going to say I was a visible minority woman um, which makes a which makes a huge like difference and dynamic and um, but uh, so that's been interesting and I'm sure we'll come on to talk about mm-hmm. uh, a number of issues related to that but um, I came back to Queens uh, as as a, as a lecturer in, in 2016 and um, I would describe myself as a feminist international lawyer um, that's kind of my training that's my mm-hmm. ethos that's my bread and butter that's what I kind of get up and figure out how to do little bits of mm-hmm. contributing to changing the world. Um, but I start off by saying feminist because I think that is fundamentally uh, who I am personally, politically, professionally. Um, and I'm, again, I'm sure we'll 
mm-hmm. unpack what that means for 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 your listeners. Um, so yes, yeah, so I teach in the areas of human rights, transitional justice, um, gender in the law, uh, criminal justice. Um, so so yeah, that's that's a little bit about me. A little bit. Wow. <laughs> so let's just unpack the the feminist international lawyer piece. What Please. does that mean to you? Oh gosh, <laughs> so much. Um, I think first of all, it means. Um, being multi-dimensional in how I understand um, patriarchal violence. So, you know, we're going straight in there with the P's. Patriarchy in all its forms and oppressions. <laughs> um, but ultimately, I think I can't look at things um, sort of in, in binary or linear ways, right? Because there's so many histories in the way that we understand violence mm-hmm. that has to inform our practice and our responses to it, right? And and patriarchy manifests itself in multiple, multiple forms, right? And then, uh, as I explained to my students, like, we should understand patriarchy in the way that we understand capitalism, right? Mm-hmm. It is a system, right? It is a system um, that shapes our understanding around these kind of gendered oppressions. And so it's important to, to think about how our activism, how our lawyering mm-hmm. responds to and uh, challenges that and dismantles it as a system. So um, my feminism is informed by black African feminists. um, And so uh, I always say to my students, like black in the sense that we have, you know, black feminists, whether it's your Angela Davis, whether it's Bell Hooks, whether it's the Kambahi River Collective, you know, um, whether it's black British feminists, like that sense of what is a black feminist is transnational in mm-hmm. understanding, right? You could go to seeing how black feminists move in Brazil and fight police violence and learn lessons about that in terms of our responses to police violence um, nationally, locally. So um, I, I think for me also being an African and I was very much brought up like, yes, I'm a Gambian, but in a household where I was reminded of a broader continental identity, which um, which I thought was interesting when Brexit came about and, and there was that whole departure from being like part of Europe and the kind of European project. I was very much brought up with a kind of pan-African household. Um, so our stories about human rights, about justice, about inequality is informed from, you know, uh, Namibia to South Africa to Senegal to Egypt to Algeria, right? Um, and so, again, for me as a, as a lawyer, that that feminism to me is is so expansive it, it it's 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 where i feel most comfortable to then bring it back to the work that i do locally right mm-hmm. and i think whenever i kind of talk to people about it they're like oh my god like they're so overwhelmed by like all these <laughs> feminisms um but i think it it helps because then you can see opportunities that you may not have seen you can see limitations you can see where there's work to be done, you can see voices that are excluded, mm-hmm. right? And I think, particularly in Northern Ireland, where there is a strong kind of women's movement and a feminist ethos, is, I think yeah. there is still so much work Absolutely. Uh, to be done about thinking about a feminist movement here that is, you know, intersectional, that is um, thinking about the ways in which we challenge um the kind of racial dynamics of gendered violence, mm-hmm. um, how minoritized communities are left behind. Mm-hmm. So while we move forward with, you know, 
domestic violence, sexual violence, um, different aspects of um, the kind of feminist agenda. Uh, Every conversation I've had or spaces I've been in where we've had really difficult but important discussions, people acknowledge Mm -hmm. that they have left behind many communities. Mm -hmm. And so for me, my feminism informs that, right? It's not to Mm -hmm. say like finger wagging, you're not doing the right thing, but it's to say like, what do we need to do better? Where, yes. what, what are we, what are we doing if we're really looking for feminist liberation? Like, mm-hmm. what does that mean if we're leaving behind travelers? Yes. If we're not thinking about domestic abuse and how it affects Somali um, refugees who are in Northern Ireland, or how it affects um, uh, uh, communities from a Muslim background? I, I grew up in a Muslim household, um, and so like these things matter. Right. And they're often missing, they're which is the often thing. Missing. And it's great to have that movement. And I've, you know, been part of that in, in, in the, both the Republic of Ireland and here, just in a very kind of loose sense yep. from yep. the margins, but just interested in watching it evolve compared to maybe the situation 10 years ago when it wasn't really there, apart from some major, you know, forerunners and speakers that we all know now and we identify with them. But that intersectionality piece isn't there even to this day. And yeah. I, I think... As I, so one of my next questions was how your experience and, and your thoughts and how you see yourself can translate to your work here. And we'll maybe go into that a little bit further. But just to say, one of I came across yourself and other fantastic speakers, I have mm. to say, in an event um, that complemented the Choose to Challenge theme, which was International Women's Day two years ago, I think we were saying, during the pandemic. And I, it was on Zoom, of course, unfortunately, everything was yeah. like then. But it was, I just took so much away from that. It really inspired me. And I just sat quietly listening to women speak about the barriers that they face, not only as women, mm-hmm. but women from within communities that we're not, we, we don't really have their experiences shared. Mm. We don't see even data published or have people. So it was That's fantastic right. to have this forum and it was the Northwest Migrants Forum had organised it. And it was just so empowering just to sit and listen. And one of the, the, the um, when people asked, I think people were, you know, typing in questions into into the um, the panel, and it was, well, how do we help? How can women and society, not just women, but how do we become allies? And how do we support your work and your message? What do we do? Is there still room for that conversation? Um, you know, what can we do to yeah. make sure that that remains on the table and progresses and invo- evolves as part of the feminist? struggle I guess in this part of the world I think that's a really great question because um you know the the kind of concept of allyship is is a big one I think particularly when we think about our our recent history with um you know Sarah Everard Mm -hmm. um when we think about George Floyd you know our understanding of the necessity of allyship in our everyday activities has become you know much more like in our consciousness sure but I think the the risk is that we perform allyship without necessarily embedding it in actually our daily practice. And I say practice with a kind of X-I-S, right? <laughs> which, is, which is how you actually do your daily work, whether you're an immigration lawyer, whether you're a, a criminal barrister, how, how do these things touch your work? And there is always space and possibility, which is part of where the kind of feminist imaginations um, that inform my work and inspire me um so yes i think it's it's important to have those conversations and and think about ways of uh, allyship but also solidarity Uh, i think i've i've learned in northern ireland that so many examples of actions of solidarity go go a long way 
But then it's how to translate, say, a protest in a street about mm. George Floyd dying into an understanding about like, okay, racism and how that affects domestic violence, racism okay. and how that affects sexual violence, racism and how that af- affects like the reporting of rape incidents, mm-hmm. Th- because it does, mm-hmm. right? It does. It may be invisible to, to many in Northern Ireland, but it does. Mm-hmm. And so um, within kind of the communities that I'm part of, the, uh, the African and Caribbean community in Northern Ireland, you know, it, it's important to think about ways to engage n- not only us, but the diverse communities in Northern Ireland. Um, as we talked about earlier um, before the recording, you know, traveler communities yeah. who have been here for a very long time. And, um, and so I think our our necessity to maybe start worrying about like am i a good ally mm-hmm. into thinking about right so great we're moving forward with you know um domestic violence in this manner this is mm-hmm. great but have we done enough to engage minority communities mm-hmm. what have we done actually not even done enough have we done anything yeah let's let's ask that yeah, question absolutely. and i think you know it's it's some of those those starting questions that are difficult, They're especially difficult. when you've been like, yes. when you've been working yeah. on an issue and, and you're in it and you're, and you're, it's been, t- it's been hard, right? It's been mm-hmm. really hard to get equal marriage. Yeah. But what does that mean when it translates to communities? If you're a gay person from Afghanistan, exactly. as we talked about, yeah. right? Do you see organizations in Northern Ireland as a space for you? Mm-hmm. We, we still have barriers. We do. Let's, let's be a, real. There's a huge piece missing of that. Um, right. In all sectors, I mean, you just mentioned their violence against women. That's a huge glaring one. Massive. I think that we need a huge amount of work done, both north and south. And yeah. we've had people on yeah. to speak about that before. But um, it's keeping it on the table. And as you say, uh, there's no point being an ally. Allyship is fantastic. And we definitely yeah. see in terms of, um, you know, um, sharing work, sharing publications, um, you know, awareness raising. But as you said, it needs to be embedded into our communities. And without that, it's not helping at all, um, you know, evolve the situation for people who potentially are victims or survivors of, let's say, just domestic violence as one example. But there are many. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, um, there's, yeah. So we obviously done plenty of research before you came on here and your work has been extensive um, in terms of your research paper, your work, um, many communities and groups that you're part of. How has your work and your research sought to chal- challenge or highlight um, racial inequality specifically within Northern Ireland? Oh gosh, that's, um, that's, that's such a big, big one. A big <laughs> really it's an open one. question, open yeah. question. Um, Believe it or not, sometimes that starting point of even getting people to acknowledge that there is an issue around kind of or, or racial dynamics attached to the gender dynamics. And this is where, you know, intersectionality is, is, is encompasses more than just race, but it is rooted in a black feminist uh, history. And even just getting people to understand that and make that connection, honestly, is 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 a big step. Because organizations know themselves. They know how they work. Individuals, yeah. whether you're, like I say, a lawyer, a barrister, a judge, you know, or a police officer uh, in women's aid, you have been working in your space. You know you're experienced. But then someone comes along and has a conversation with you or you read a paper or a, a report or a workshop, um, a lot of workshops, um, where 
you then hear somebody mention like, oh, you know, I, I, I was, you know, working with or somebody who spoke to me from the black community where I, I share stories about um, who was a victim of violence, didn't feel comfortable going to the PSNI, so relied on community support, mm-hmm. right? So one is trying to advocate and say, well, go to Nexus or Women's Aid, but people don't feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. People don't feel safe, sure. which is hard to hear when you're the service provider mm-hmm. or you're the police or you're the Ministry of Justice because you want to reach out to these communities, but you feel like, oh, but how do I do that? And, and some of it is, is, is getting people around the table, going to people. Right. I remember having a conversation with one organization um, based in the North Coast where I was like, you you decide definitions. Mm -hmm. So you're sitting in your room saying, do we use ethnic minority? Do we say black? Do we what what do we do? I was like, go into the communities that you're working with and ask them, connect with them. Like if you're going to center minority voices, racialized voices, Let's do that Mm -hmm. because we do that on one hand where we talk about survivors and um, victims. So why can't we do that when it comes to understanding some of these more, you know, layered Mm -hmm. uh, um, identities, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think for me, my work particularly here is often about starting that for people, igniting that within them to say, right, okay, what could my organization do? Mm-hmm. I, I hate the idea of offering this kind of bulletin solution. Yeah. Like, here you go. Here's the package. Mm-hmm. You can become more racial equal. I think that that is not sustainable. Mm-hmm. It has to be rooted in some kind of understanding, some kind of organic, holistic appreciation of mm-hmm. the work and the experience that you've been doing, but also connecting to the communities that you seek to include. Mm-hmm. that you seek to represent. Yeah. One of the things, uh, certainly in the Northwest M- Migrants Forum, is about you know the politics um, and how we want to encourage minorities who have been here for a long time to, to, to use their political power, yeah. to stand for local elections, etc. cetera. Um, but even if we don't, and I include myself in it, we should hold our leaders accountable, sure. right? So people who have been canvassing within my neighborhood, first question they get when after <laughs> the knock <laughs> is about racial equality if they haven't read the racial equality strategy at least as a bare thing and give me some spiel about being inclusive and how they mm-hmm. want to do that. Like that tells me that you don't really care about my vote, mm-hmm. right? So my work is trying particularly here to at least ignite that conversation going forward and think about pathways to, to kind of liberating us from racial inequality as well as gendered violence, mm-hmm. yeah. right? Because the patriarchy comes in all forms and it hurts all genders. All genders, yeah. And I mean, we can even see there with, um, you know, for example, the public inquiries that they're holding now. Absolutely. There's really a movement there to bring um, the survivors um experience as the center narrative to get things and I think that's something we've seen over the past five six years whereas it wasn't part of the discussion before I'm thinking maybe just about mother and baby homes but there's so many other inquiries or um investigations that go on that people are now starting to say no we want to start from you know the victim or the survivor's story first and you you can see that movement 
But I guess what you're saying, and I see it at so many different kind of organisations or committees that I sit on, it's almost like a tick box exercise to say the right word. And as long as you're including that word, Mm -hmm. haven't you done enough? But I think it's a great example that you use there about um, women getting into politics Mm -hmm. and, you know, to try and encourage that more. But really for us to understand the racial, the, the strategy at least, that we don't really, I haven't seen it discussed at all it I doesn't include anything I, I around gender violence i've never yeah you know when you're just looking at, at now coming up to the elections it's 5th of may isn't it here Fifth of May. Yeah. it's not i mean it's no. not discussed no. at all but i think you do see equality um, that's as right. a word plastered pretty much everywhere, everywhere. Yep. so it's what does that mean as you yeah. say in reality, in reality on the ground within our communities and i hope you know i think this is quite an inspiring discussion for people listening today just to really think about that yeah. when, when they do vote and that's a valid question to ask somebody yeah. so who knocks on your door. Exactly. <laughs> I'll, not, I'll not tell yeah. you what I ask. But anyway, so... Um, totally, and I think one, one thing I would add to that is the way that it, af- it, it affects people's lives in multiple ways. So one of the projects I'm currently working on is thinking about how we understand, like, um, uh, the experience of racism a- across someone's everyday life okay so particularly we're focusing on women but so you could capture their experiences in race hate crime sure in domestic violence or sexual violence if they're affected Mm -hmm. but also what about the healthcare system Mm -hmm. when they're asked to prove their immigration status as a pregnant woman going in to get health care and you're there in a room full of predominantly white Uh, other expected mothers and you are then the one who is spotlighted to prove their status not not they don't quietly pull you aside they do this in front of everybody else so they other you actively Right? Straight away. Mm-hmm. There's a human yeah. rights issue right there. Thank you education? so much for raising that. Yeah. That's something that we deal with Same. all yep. the time. There you go. And they're handed the questionnaire. In right. Front. This is your in front of everybody. People are absolutely startled. We totally. get the phone call. Hi, Sarah. Hi, we've got a questionnaire here yep. that we've been asked of the panic for a pregnant woman, yep. maybe seven, eight months at this stage, yes. whatever, to fill out this questionnaire. Do we have to pay? What What are we going to be charged this? We don't have any money. This is what they're thinking of instead of, I'm going in for my scan now I'm going you know yes. to be in a relaxed environment yeah. they're immediately kind of set aside from everybody else so we're dealing with this today funny enough within our, our work um today we have to deal with this with um the BSO but you're so right and I'm and glad you yeah. brought that it's a off. human rights issue and we yeah. actually seen it um just before COVID hit we were at yeah. a discussion over in the arts center and they were discussing the travel between Mm-hmm. mainland UK and, and Northern Ireland yep. and how they would have random checks, mm-hmm. immigration and actually the percentage oh, yeah, that's of right. black and uh, minority groups that were stopped mm-hmm. uh, they would never stop a white person travelling uh-huh. between the UK and, and Northern Ireland and it's one of those things that it happens but unless somebody calls it out, it's never really discussed. It's just, yeah. oh, that's that's yeah. the way it is. And I think coming up to election time, it's starting to come on the table now for certain people who will raise it as an issue now. Yes. Coming up. But it, it's been quiet for so long. For but so long. thankfully, groups are getting together. I know along Derry, Donegal border, there was a really great mm-hmm. um, protest. But I think we need one here too, yeah. <laughs> in, in Uri, between Uri and Louth. But um, a huge problem that people just don't really... Maybe they, they don't know what's happening, but 
you know, it's happening and we've, we, I've witnessed it, not just in practice as an immigration solicitor, when we've, our clients tell us this. I've seen it on the bus myself yes. several times, yeah. you know. So a huge piece of work to be done there, just number one, to highlight it as yeah. an issue. Yeah. But yeah, and education, you were going to education, say as well. Education, right, yeah. same kind of spaces. So a lot of um, stories, again, because people would come to me knowing that I, A, I'm outspoken about this, but B, that I'm, I'm going to find out what we can do and who we write angry letters to, who we have a phone call with, who do we have a meeting with. So a kind of activism that goes beyond writing my papers and my books, but one that where if someone calls me or emails me or says, this has happened, mm -hmm. right, who do I need to tweet to, to get this to get some attention to this. Yeah. Because, you know, education is one that comes up all the time. You know, parents who come and, and, and you know, we're talking about just, you know, how their kids are doing. And children who persistently from a young age, from like P2, P3, are navigating and having to learn the ways in which, like, they are made to feel other. Mm. Right? So even if it's just the pronunciation of your name, it's like, okay, well... Well, I don't know. We'll just call you Yaz because we can't say Yasin. Well, no, my name's Yasin. And you're the only one in the class because the teacher can't be bothered to say your like ethnic name. You notice that actually here that people actually change their names and pick different names just <laughs> right? to suit. These are microaggressions. Yeah. These yeah. are what we call microaggressions. Racism isn't just about calling people horrific names, but these microaggressions, right? Mm -hmm whether it's in the hospital, whether it's at the airport, whether it's in, you know, a little kid whose who's name is being butchered because the teacher yeah. can't be bothered. Mm -hmm. So they don't want to feel, they don't want to feel like othered. Yeah. And, but these are human rights issues. If we go back to human rights and social justice and think about what we want our children to feel within the education system, right? Mm -hmm. Let's think about that from mm -hmm. primary right to tertiary level education right, the attainment gap, the way that um, teachers will potentially marginalize, the stories that we tell and the stereotypes perpetuated um, yeah. within schools. So yeah. I, uh, uh, there's a wonderful woman um, in Axoni, um, uh, Nandi, who works on um, uh, education curriculum, right, in Northern Ireland, and thinking about what, what is the curriculum teaching children about minorities, right, mm -hmm. and the stereotypes perpetuated within them. Mm -hmm. So... That, that's what I mean about thinking about racial dynamics, gender dynamics, combining those two in every space. Yeah. And have young people as well share their experiences. I remember being at an event in Dublin um, quite a few years back that you spoke there about from primary level up right through to secondary to third level, this microaggression that you've referred to there. That continues um, and really impacts young people applying for jobs. Yes. Um, young people who were born in Ireland. Yep. And they said oh, things that just really struck me that they didn't want to use their, their own names. They wanted to change it simply for the purposes of applying for a job. Yeah. They also were worried in some jobs where they asked you or applications, you had to upload a photograph. This concerned a young, educated Irish person. Yes. Simply because of the colour of their skin. This yeah. was their this was in their mind. So, I mean, those conversations um, from young people, their experiences have to be, I mean, like, have to affect change. And that was a number, uh, that was maybe about five years ago or so that I saw that. So, I mean, hopefully matters are evolving in that. But as you said, we still have many, many hurdles to overcome there. Many, many to hurdles. To stop this um, from 
such a young age. Many. Education, health, every mm. aspect of our lives, really. Um, and there's one area or event, we'll call it, which is the pandemic. Yeah. And it showed a lot of shortfalls within That's our right. society, within healthcare and other, and other departments. But how did the pan- pandemic shine a light on the systemic and in, uh, racial inequality within our society? Oh, gosh, I think hugely. Um, it just exacerbated what was pre-existing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, again, in the sense that w- when you go out and you talk to communities um, who are minoritized, certainly within Northern Ireland, as well as um, uh, uh, the UK, you know, you see issues around, you know, access to social services, delays in healthcare. Um, again, housing issues was another massive one that people came and spoke to me about. Um, and, and, and I think the pandemic... Uh, just demonstrated, um, you know, when it came to the rise in domestic abuse, that also would affect ethnic minority communities. But when you look at certainly here, the kind of stories around it, that experience is not captured, right? It's not to say it's not important um, to get a, 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 a sense of the story being told at the moment, but again, if we're not, if we ca- if we can't recognize domestic abuse and the rise of that within the context of minoritized communities, then we're missing out, and we're further marginalizing people who are already being marginalized by the system. So I think there's just so much that the pandemic kind of exposed, and then the gaps that it just exacerbated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. My my concern has always been that that becomes normalized, right? So. The gaps continue and we just, we live with it. So our quote unquote yeah. new normal is not to rectify it, but it is to continue to kind of just keep calm, carry, carry on. on. A, a, as, Put it behind us. The, the, right? wi- the wider the gap, the more normal it becomes. And, that, and, the, yeah. and, the, and the gap will then widen, mm-hmm. right? On top of it, what I'm sure you both know, austerity measures, mm-hmm. it, immigration rules that went just further. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's getting worse. <laughs> getting worse, right? And it becomes so bad, people think that it's so bad it can't be fixed. Yep. I'll just rather leave it yep. than try and fight. Mm. Women in the workplace, yeah. right? We yeah. talked about the economic consequences of COVID on women. Yeah, I mean, I think it's um, highlighted issues that were already there, 100%. Yep. But it's also given um, authorities and the government an opportunity to um, abuse um, vulnerable people as well. And women, when they continue, you know, to make policy, you know, Absolutely. using COVID and the pandemic mm. as an excuse yep. almost. So you, you, I think we see that happening a lot now. But and then a lack of recognition of really like some of the um, contributions that uh, minoritized people make. So uh, let me give you one example that is a live issue. So I'm working with a group of women who um, work in the health and um, uh, social care uh, system. Mm-hmm. So they um, worked in a lot of the nursing homes um, and provide they're, they're mostly care workers. OK. okay. Um, and uh a lot of them are from uh, different parts uh, of Africa. So um, h- here working, and they worked throughout the pandemic, right? Throughout the pandemic, we saw minorities go out and put themselves on the front lines day after day. Not even just in care, but also in our hospitals. But I'll talk about the care system. Mm-hmm. The amount of racism these women have faced is extraordinary. 
So when they were talking about this to me, I was like, right, do you know what we need to do? Everybody needs to start to write down, just keep a count mm -hmm. of everything that happens, right? So just keep a diary, write what happened, write who you spoke to. So to start to document this, right? And, and pass it on, tell it, to, tell it to the other women, right? And they're like, oh, but what are we gonna do? I was like, let's just create a dossier and then we'll find a lawyer. Because ultimately, the, the trust involved, right, yeah. need to know about this. And mm -hmm. rather than present them the, the, this evidence where they might just dismiss all of your experiences as anecdotal, because that often happens with organizations. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's one off or yeah. it's, right? If we document, document it to demonstrate it systematically, we find a lawyer who will, who will connect this with the human rights issues mm -hmm. that it is clearly bringing up, mm -hmm. then this is where we can start to advocate for change. Mm -hmm. Some of the women were just like, we'll just move jobs. Yeah, they don't feel supported at all. And you know what? They're in a vulnerable, most of them are feeling vulnerable anyway because yeah. they're subject to a hostile, vile immigration system that they're worried to speak up about. How awful is that to live? And that's no life to live. Yeah. That you cannot, you know, address systematic mm -hmm. abuse yeah. and racism within your daily job where you are and we've we've clients as well here who worked I mean two jobs mm -hmm. through the whole pandemic That's right. and um not a word of not like I, I, thanks is nothing I mean you can stand and clap for people all you want and do these token gestures yeah. but it just makes my blood boil that we know them as well Jack in such vulnerable positions they're afraid yeah. to speak out yeah. and afraid that it might affect their job or with some always living in that yep. and they've been here 20 years they've got children born you, yep. the, you know it just really is uh, getting to the point yeah. now where something like so you've got to be class done. you've got yeah. race you've got an immigration system so all of that will perpetuate a, a particular kind of oppression that they have to live with day in day out that renders them silent when they face racial abuse in the workplace so it creates this culture, this yeah. toxic culture, which makes minorities feel just silent. Just mm -hmm. keep quiet about it. I'll just move jobs or I won't say anything because I depend on that livelihood. These mm -hmm. are working class women. So uh, we can see the importance of understanding that. But when you talk to politicians, they'll say, oh, you know, well, we're working on race hate crime. That, yeah, that's right. something great, yeah. great. But I'm telling you about a particular story going on in the healthcare system. What are you doing about that? Race hate crime, criminalizing race hate is one thing, but actually there is an employment issue going on here, mm -hmm. tagged along with racial Race inequality. Yeah. Absolutely. My goodness. Yeah, and you find that with, within society, sometimes the government and the power from above kind of push people down and people have to worry about the paychecks and they have to worry about exactly. where the food's on. coming out yeah. and they can't afford to to really question inequalities because they're they're thinking about the basic needs for it's their all family leads into poverty yeah. it's all intersectional as well yeah. and that you know which is where my feminism yeah. comes from right seeing it seeing things multidimensionally like that yes absolutely yeah and so as i know you're an academic within within queens and third level education has experienced wide scale um strikes at the moment when i was studying in queens last year the last two years there was a few strikes when mm. i was there so You've been very open about how both university staff and students deserve better and have the right to strike to fight for better. So how exhausting but important is industrial action in transforming the current university structure and environment? 
for me, I see it as a human rights issue. And I have said this um, within our kind of union where we've had webinars or talks or, you know, this isn't just an employment issue. If we if we if we think about it from a human rights perspective, right? Your working conditions, labor exploitation is it tag teams along with our fight for social justice and human rights. And so, for me, it is imperative that universities respond to that because again, we see the gendered consequences to that. We see the racialized consequences to that, whether it's pay inequality, whether it's the exploitive working conditions, particularly of uh, early career staff who are on uh, precarious contracts for a lot of them, um, but not even necessarily early career. You have lots of staff who are on who have been on these temporary short-term yeah. contracts mm-hmm. that give them very little job security, try and arrange that when you're trying to do childcare or where, you're, or where you have a healthcare emergency. Like, it's really, it's really problematic. And I think for the amount of money that universities and certainly Queen's has and makes and has in reserves, it is shocking um, some of the stories that you hear from uh, the picket line and from uh, many of us who participate in the strikes. Um, one very powerful example that I give is with um, th- the issue around the childcare workers, right? So who worked throughout the pandemic and then had their working conditions changed by the employer, mm-hmm. right? Not to the benefit of them, but to the benefit of the employer and the detriment of them. So, so they protested. Right. Queens crush workers. I mean, honestly, you can't have an institution who doesn't see, on the one hand, the necessity to support its crush workers by giving them strong working conditions, but at the same time hails its gender credentials. Right. It's 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 hypocrisy. And I think people are tired of that hypocrisy. Right. That you see academics coming in and out of the classroom, giving time to their students, um, doing the best that they can, but who feel insecure, whose pensions have been cut extraordinarily. Mm-hmm. Right. So th- we see this and we've had enough. Right. And it's been an ongoing dispute. But I think I think the, the palpable anger and exhaustion is so clear now. And it's time for politicians in Northern Ireland to back um, workers at the university, mm-hmm. to back um, the the union and its campaign. We saw so many strikes going on in Belfast <laughs> very recently with a number of different unions. Um, you know, we are in a time of, of crisis when it comes to exploit exploitation economically mm-hmm. by those who my goodness, should know better. Yeah, yeah it feels like a so total contradiction of the right. purpose and, and the, what would you call it, the, the feeling of Queen's is yeah. diversity, yep. the inclusivity. Ethos. Yeah, yeah. It, and it co- completely contradicts that. Mm. It really does. Yeah. And it's hard for, for people to continue to live with that and just kind yeah. of keep silent. So drastic action. Um, yeah. Yeah, well, that continues, doesn't it? And that's ongoing at the moment. Um, But just back, (laughs) we touched on this a little bit, um, but we have to uh, highlight some change. And I know by the time this this airs, we're probably in a different uh, scenario when it comes to immigration. But the reason I'm I'm bringing this up is it's just very topical, obviously with our work, but you've been outspoken as well on issues around deportation, these kind of um, deportations from 
uh, Northern Ireland, even over to Scotland, mm. without notice, that people would not, nobody would really be familiar that this is actually happening here. Um, there's that, but there's so much to contend with. And I think... Um, the media, to a certain extent, or certain corners of the media covers some of it, but there's really so much goes on unnoticed only for those who are working within it or those who are subject to the absolutely degrading treatment that they receive. But um, heavy handed, you know, treatment against vulnerable people living here. But it's so disheartening to see that every week that goes by, it almost seems to get worse. Um, you know, another policy with the anti refugee bill, otherwise known as the Nationality and Borders Bill. Yep. We've the hostile environment that we just mentioned. You know, we still are dealing with the aftermath of Windrush and the disaster that that created. Absolutely. Horrendous decisions that are ongoing every day and subject to challenge. And now we've got Rwanda and a partnership, yep. a partnership with the UK and Rwanda to offshore, which we know that's not really what they're doing, yep. um, vulnerable men, women and children, because that's what it will be, to Rwanda yep. of all places. Yep. What do you think about this? And I mean, how do you, for even from a legal perspective, mm-hmm. Do we expect challenges under the convention? I mean, it has to be a fundamental breach of human rights to send one there. How do you see this evolving or will it get to that stage or is this just tokenistic, you know, coming up to an election? Is this something mm-hmm. that, you know, they want the message that we're Strong Brexit Britain? Yeah. This is our protecting our borders. How do you see it playing out? I think, I mean, the call to action is ever loud and clear. Mm-hmm ever loud and clear. We need to be fighting this on multiple fronts, right? So judicial review, when I tweeted about that um, dispersal, uh, <laughs> as, uh, as I was informed that it was, it wasn't a deportation, a it was a dispersal. And I was like, okay, we're again, treating human beings like um, in such inhumane ways. Um, but again, without notice, um, you know, mm-hmm. ripping people out of the community. Yeah. So just to be clear to listeners, sorry, asylum seekers, asylum seekers, asylum seekers removed from Northern Ireland to Scotland without notice. And I know that's being challenged at the moment. Exactly. Yeah. So So, uh, I think judicial review has to be one avenue that we um, use. And again, I think that's just the the lawyer in me coming out. Mm -hmm. I think we have to think about a human rights litigation around this. Right. Um, The the necessity of that is is so important. Again, it's it's one of the things that uh, I was sort of uh, uh, plotting w- with a friend of mine when when she saw the tweet and she was like, "We need to get people together. We need to mobilize and think about ways." And I was like, "Loads of immigration lawyers got in touch with me. Let's get everybody in a room. Let's let's do this. Let's figure out ways to challenge this, right? Um, because you're right. The government, the state is going, you yeah. know, full throttle mm-hmm. uh, moving forward, and and the kind of UK Rwanda." partnership is, is just a, is, it's just another example of that and it does so because it thinks it can be unchecked yeah and so for those of us who believe in human rights who advocate for human rights uh, the call to action is there we need to mobilize and get active in response to this mm-hmm. so protests is one way i know there was one in scotland uh, um yeah. some time ago where people protested the removal of asylum seekers That's right it's just just people just surrounded the bus mm-hmm. they did let's do this yeah and it was so effective wasn't it, it even was to so get effective. that attention there. and again it sends the message right mm-hmm. it sends the message to the powers that be that you may continue to do this but we see you yeah. we see what you're doing and we will fight against it Right. Mm-hmm. 
That's powerful. I it would have powerful. loved for people, and, and I saw people around when um, when my friend called me and told me that like the bus is here for it because because these were a group of asylum seekers that we knew we were friends with, and um, and they were like the bus is here, and she was so upset about it. And I was like, if we had done Glasgow, yeah, if we had just known and mobilized around that bus, right. Mm-hmm at least they would know that we're not just going to go quietly. We're going to fight for people. And I think that's, that, that's what I would say. Like the state is going to continue to do what it's doing. Yeah. And it is scary and as hostile and um, degrading as you can imagine. Yeah. But this is where academics, advoc- um, a- a- activists, community workers, all of us need to be in touch and 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 build our force field and then go out and and like fight this Uh because i think if you if you think just going to the ballot box and voting for uh, which is important Mm -hmm. is going to is going to make the change we've seen politicians can easily put aside and deprioritize these issues Mm -hmm. that affect so many in our community Mm -hmm. i feel feel like within the government, the checks and balances that were there yeah. have been nearly removed over the last That's couple of right. years. And Brexit have, has supported that. Entirely. Yeah. So they can't hold themselves accountable. So I think it's now down to the people when you vote for people in, but yeah. I still think within the government, the checks and balances are gone. So I think it's down to individuals to come together to really challenge it. That's right. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think we've moved on from the conversation as to whether the regime, the immigration regime is inherently racist, racist or not. It is. Mm-hmm. It is. But um, That's not up for debate. It's it not is. up for debate. Yeah. It is. But also the fact that it's so clear now as well, people aren't stupid, you know, that yeah. Im- immigrants and migrants, the migrant community here are scapegoats for whenever anything goes wrong on in any respect, in any aspect yeah. of community, yeah. this is where they go back. And how unfair and how degrading is it mm. to mess with people's lives like that yeah. just to cover up your own shortfalls? Yeah. And we're seeing it time and time again. And thankfully, people are, I think, becoming live to this now. I agree and with that. And hopefully they vote accordingly. But it, that's not enough, as you say. I think it's mobilising, getting together and protest is, is the way forward. But I'm glad to see that some of these things are on the table now and they are becoming more visible to the general public, which is a good move. So just to kind of keep the pressure on that. Exactly. And I, I think it's kind of almost laughable that they refer to their own policy as the, the hostile environment. I mean, that's that's the language they created themselves. Mm-hmm. So fair play to them around that. And it's that brazenness yeah. about it that should remind us all about like what it is that we're fighting against, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in the context of, uh, I can't remember who it was, um, uh, uh, who quoted this, I think it was Nawal El-Zadawi, who's an Egyptian feminist. Yes. Um, and, and she talks about like patriarchy and how it manifests itself in different forms. And I always say that to my students, and it's the same when we think about immigration policy and the maneuvers of the state. Like, be aware that it will be manifest in different forms. Within Queens, our international students are monitored in ways where if they miss one monitoring report, you know, immediately they're sent to this sort of email like did you go to class or have you met their, your supervisor and I always remind them that this is part of the border like yeah. the border Britain culture Absolutely. right the, the, 
that these types of of immigration policies are not just only the dispersal orders, but it is within the healthcare system acting asking about somebody's immigration system. It is Queens asking our international students to to constantly fill out these monitoring forms. It becomes normalized, and we have to remind ourselves that this is abnormal. Abnormal. This is not normal. And aren't we living in? I mean, <laughs> strange, strange times, whereby we're trying to grapple with this along with managing the crisis in Ukraine okay which is has produced more refugees than the second world war horrendous horrendous atrocity and I mean you know I don't think any of us will get our heads around what is happening there but the outpour of support from the public let's talk about UK and Ireland here just we're here but across Europe and across the world essentially mm-hmm. has been notable I've, I've never seen the like of it before we have people calling here every day offering their homes fantastic absolutely great to see that generosity of spirit there and you know I might not necessarily agree with these um sponsorship schemes and all the rest for other reasons but it's good you know to capture that spirit that exists however that um generosity of spirit and that outpouring of support is existing for one group of people who are refugees and that's a fact however as we're aware and and you're very aware we've been dealing with asylum seekers and refugees from crisis after crisis Syria Afghanistan Yemen people don't even get a look in yeah so it's hard to navigate this whole I don't know I don't know what to call it I don't know how to describe what's happening and I'm happy in one way to see maybe you know this focus on refugees But the difficulty there is that the public are almost left to deal with this and to come up with their own kind of narrative and construct of what is a refugee. Well, it's people with a Ukrainian passport. Now, not even people who are from other communities living within Ukraine, which is one massive issue that we have to deal with. So there's a lot happening at once. But I fear that um, it's a really strong example of racism at work from Europe, but outside of Europe too. How do we grapple with this in in your or can we? What can we do? I think you're so right, and I think also what it does it is that it creates a hierarchy of victimhood or um, a- asylum and refugee seekers. So, at the apex, we have. Um, Ukrainian refugees and as you say we we have examples where we have Syrians Afghanistan etc uh, Yemen uh, so we start to to create this hierarchy uh, and anyone who should understand even like at a basic level refugee and asylum law and the history of that and what it's about there isn't there should not be a hierarchy in the way that we treat um, people leave like fleeing for their lives, fleeing from persecution, violence, war, conflict, et cetera, et cetera, Mm -hmm. the whole list of things. So number one, our job is to, is to point that out, that this hierarchy is, is false, right? That we we can't accept it. Mm -hmm. We can't accept it as much as the state. And, you know, again, you're, you're absolutely right. The kind of racial dynamics of European politics, as we just saw in France, um, like, we have to challenge that vocally and at every opportunity, mm-hmm. right? So people will say to me, well, are you, are you against the Ukrainian refugees? No, I'm not. No. I, I absolutely want people who are fleeing from a conflict to, to find sanctuary and safety and, and, and do that as soon as possible. But I am deeply concerned when we disperse people on the one hand um, 
move them to Rwanda on another, and then at the same time present ourselves as, you know, refugee friendly. Refugee friendly is, 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 has to mean something or it doesn't mean anything. And I think for all of us and those of us listening, it's our job to continually like fight that narrative that the state is pushing forward because that's yeah. what they're doing. And, and, and we discussed false, this earlier. Yeah. It's a false narrative. It's, it's, you know, th- there's nothing like a good divide and conquer. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's an old school tactic, but that's what they're doing. So some people are worthy and some are not. Mm-hmm. And I think it comes back to the discussions that we were having at the start that w- once we do something that's progressive or something that's put through this progressive, we need to then have some sense of self-reflection to whether it helps out a wide range of people and not just the one that, that it was aimed for. It needs to have a wide range of people. So yes, this scheme that's brought in may not be perfect, but it's definitely easier than the current asylum yeah. asylum yeah, scheme. Well, that's broken it, yeah. to hell. <laughs> so if, if it's that easy to bring in yeah. for, for Ukrainians, we need to have that self-reflection to whether it could be widespread for for everyone i think i'm so negative about the whole thing and i fear that this is just a tactic an absolute um a way to kind of dump this on the public and that the public as you said this refugee friendly and it's great you know fantastic to have but i think it's so dangerous in that it's creating xenophobia racism within our own societies but we're we're not going to be aware of it because we've done so much you know to open our doors we've assistance centers all of this is great but is that then do you kind of you know wash your hands and kind of move on and that's it that's what we've done we've done our duty and that's it how do we make sure that it remains part of our lives now. This has to continue. We have to be aware of the people who've been here for 10 years. Yes. They're just still yeah. just, imagine how they feel. God, I just yeah. keep, and people who have been, you know, the Afghan refugee programs that are in place, by the way, um, people are still waiting yes. in Kabul yep. to get here two years later and they're still getting, sorry, we'll be back to you at some point. You know, there's there's no response there. So it's a very dangerous um, I don't know. It's a very difficult time, and I think yes, we will need to re- reflect on it. But I, th- I feel like I don't know. Um, the messaging is just being so mixed here. It's it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Mm. Um, but yes, there's so so much food for thought there. Um, but just I guess we'll we'll finish up on on the question that we ask all of our guests um, okay. around activism and yeah. the title of our podcast is Activist Lawyer. So what does that mean to you in terms of your work? Um, would you encourage people to become activists if they believe in challenging something or do you think the law can be used as an effective tool for change? <laughs> That's, wow. Um, what activism means to me? Um Gosh, I, I think it's a it's, it's a hard question because I can't answer it without feeling like an emotional reaction. Mm-hmm. So, uh, activism for me, on the one hand, um, started off being around survival. So whether it's, you know, sexual violence, whether it's domestic violence. I, I saw activism a, as a tool to just survive those situations um, and to help people 
to maneuver out of dangerous situations. And that was localized, personalized, and communal and familial. And that was a form of activism. And, that, and that's, that, that, that's where I was molded to understand activism. Not in university, mm-hmm. but in homes and families closest to me. And, and so that, that kind of activism was rooted within community. It relied on community to give sanctuary to a woman who was fleeing from an abusive partner. It relied on um, community to heal the wounds of somebody who came to your door battered and bruised and you could just help, you know, bandage her or um, offer her pain medication or a bed for the night. I didn't know it then, but that was activism as demonstrated by, you know, people around me as a young child growing up. And then, and then you kind of grow up and you start to see these bigger and bigger injustices and you're, and you're mad and you're kind of thinking, what do I do about that? So you start to look to, and it's one of the reasons why I went into law, but you start to look at the like justice frameworks. So the law, as you mm-hmm. say, the like justice system um, and I went in with hopes and aspirations and I was disappointed. I was disappointed when I saw, um, you know, I saw people who treated me differently, other black people differently, who when you enter a courtroom um, as a young, like a student who's doing a mini pupillage and people are sort of wondering like, oh, are you with that barrister? And you start to see these little things in the justice system. And then you learn about the inherent like racial divisions within the justice system, the difficulties of rape survivors accessing justice, let alone um, getting justice and, and in terms of a conviction that they may want to see um, at the end of the process. You start to see the chinks. Mm-hmm. And I always say to my students, it, it was not so much as seeing the chinks, but the reality of the work that needed to be done. And... So activism to me is a commitment to that work, whatever that work is. Mm -hmm. So whether it's in environmental law, whether it's in housing, whether it's in immigration, it's a commitment to that work. So the question is, what's the work? And it will be different for each one of us. I hope that makes sense. It makes perfect sense. Perfect sense. Um, Dr. Yasin Bringer, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And we look forward to having you back soon thank to catch you. up on all of your work. Thank I'm all you fired so much. Up now. Oh, <laughs> me too. <laughs> thank you. And thank, thank you, you so to, much. Thank you to everyone for listening. 